Hi, I'm Pete Price. Frank McKenna, downtown in business, was a politician. He has an opinion. He comes on my show regularly. I love his comments. This one and this podcast is about the war, is about the strike, is about Boris, is about work in Liverpool. Have a listen. Find out how many people are out of work on benefits and how many people don't want to work. Have a listen now to Frank McKenna, Downtown in Business. Ladies and gentlemen, I am always thrilled to have Frank McKenna from Downtown in Business on the programme, especially tonight, knowing that Boris is going for a third term in office. (laughs) Frank, you can't make that up, can you? (laughs) Well, if nothing else, you've got to admire the man's (laughs) confidence and cheek, I suppose, haven't you? Um, You know, after the... I was going to say the week he's had, but after the year he's had, the fact that he can spin his way or try and spin his way out of it in the way he's trying to at the moment is is pretty remarkable. Um, and obviously, listen, I don't think he's going to fight the next general election, if I'm honest. Yeah. But the big um, plus point from his perspective, I guess, is, is twofold. Firstly, you know, his own party can't agree on an alternative candidate and whilst that's the case his place as Prime Minister remains pretty secure Uh, I don't think that the vote of no confidence uh, would have been called had there been a strategy in place because those who want to unseat him would have waited until those by-election results on Thursday which were clearly going to be uh, poor for the Conservatives but there is no strategy or plan or group of MPs trying to get rid of them. It's just a a group of individual voices, if you like. And so without that plan, without that strategy, it's difficult to unseat a sitting PM. And then the other problem um, for the the opponents of of Johnson, in a sense, is that although the results were disappointing for the Conservative Party on Thursday night, the swing to the Labour Party, given the fact that we are having a cost of living crisis. We've just come out of a, a very damaging pandemic. Um, we've got the Ukrainian war, which is creating so many uh, problems here at home. And then you've got party data and all those other controversies that Boris Johnson has been um, involved in. Labour should be winning that seat by 20 points, 30. You know, the the, the poll lead that we've got at the moment for the Labour Party of 6-7% is nowhere near where opposition should be mid-term. So, as I say, a combination of those things would suggest to Boris Johnson that at least in the short term, you say, as a, a very senior Tory grandee told me late towards last year, Boris Johnson's a bit like Harry Maguire. He's always got a mistake in him. So we wait to see what's next with him. So I don't think he'll survive until the next general election, but unless and until the Tories can find an alternative and unless and until the Labour Party can start to to break through uh, a bit more than is the case at the moment, um, then I think he he will be as confident as he could be at this moment in time. Frank, putting your politician's head on, because you were a politician, uh, now you run downtown and business all over the country, which is doing incredibly successful. But putting your politician head on, is Boris doing the right thing with the foreign policies in your eyes? 
in terms of Ukraine, yeah, um, I think he is. I think that um, you know history tells us that dictators um, need to be um, challenged uh, and not placated. Uh, and I think Putin probably got away with too much, actually, uh, by Europe and. Certainly, the United Kingdom was part of that. I mean, the amount of Russian cash that we took uh, as a nation state was probably more uh, than anybody else, not to mention the massive donations that the Conservative Party received from many Russian oligarchs. So, you know, we've come to the party late in a sense, but I think Johnson, Biden, and the other leaders who are staying strong as far as Ukraine is concerned, it is the right way to go at the moment. The problem is that the economic sanctions that have been imposed on Russia are not having the impact that we'd have hoped because, of course, China and India have taken up the slack in terms of oil supply. And so exports from Russia are still really strong. And you know, Europe, particularly places like Germany and Italy, are still very reliant upon Russian energy. And so they're still paying over the odds, actually. Um, for Russian oil. So it's a long haul, and I think the inevitable um, outcome of this will be, difficult to say, but I think the inevitable outcome of this will be a negotiated settlement where Putin and Russia will take some land from Ukraine. And I know Zelensky is saying that he's not prepared to do that, but unfortunately for him and for the rest of the world, I think the conflict, if it goes on, is just going to be too expensive and too costly to the economies of Europe. And therefore, I think even people like Boris Johnson, Joe Biden, who are, as I say, being very hawkish at the moment in terms of their approach towards the Russians, will have to lament because there will be public pressure. Now, how much more of an increase in petrol prices, for example, are people prepared to take? And you can already see the consequences of what's happening in terms of inflation, cost of living squeeze, with some of the things that are happening in the wider economy, including, of course, uh, the strike actions that are taking place and being talked about at the moment. Yeah, just before we go on to that, Frank, let's uh, stay with the war. Um, If they give in to Putin and give him some land, isn't he in a position then to say, because he seems deluded again, another deluded man, um, that he could invade Europe? Well, that's the big question, Mark, isn't it, as to, as to how that negotiated settlement would come about and what we would need to put in place to protect um, NATO countries, Europe, uh, and particularly, of course, in our situation, uh, our island that is the UK. Um, so I think you know, any negotiation um, would probably see um, the eastern side of Ukraine um, we might go towards um, Russia's sovereignty. Not something that anybody wants to see, but I think if there's a negotiated settlement... Well, listen, there's got to be a negotiated settlement, hasn't there? Because you, you can't conti- just have a continuous war. Wars come to an end at some point because there's a negotiation. Now, whether that happens in a year or 10 years, that's inevitably what's going to happen. If Putin is still in charge of Russia for the foreseeable future, 
he isn't going to walk away from that wall without getting something. And so I suppose that from from our perspective and from the West perspective, the only positive outcome then would be a case where a clear line was drawn in the sound. And we actually did literally uh, put both weapons and troops into Ukraine, strengthen forces within Poland, and start to rebuild uh, our weaponry and our military arsenal in those parts of Eastern Europe that we haven't been uh, as watchful over, perhaps, as we also have been whilst Putin has been playing his war games for eight, nine years now. So I think that is potentially going to be the ultimate outcome of this. Um, But ultimately, it's going to be a case of how much support governments in Western Europe can continue to get from their people whilst, as I say, the economies in all of the European countries, but here in particular, are being absolutely battered. Yeah. Um, One more comment about that. There was a headline um, last week, which I saw all over the place, and people didn't pick pick up on it, which I was surprised, saying that uh, the Russians were saying that if there was a war with NATO, London would be bombed first. That that put a shiver in my spine. It's always been um, a fear. For, for us because we are the isolated island, aren't we? And, and we've isolated ourselves even more over the past five or six years. You know, the support and soft power that we once had in the world has slowly but surely declined, um, partly, of course, because of the Brexit vote, but also because of some of the shenanigans that uh, Boris Johnson's government has got up to in terms of you know, treating international law as shabbily as this government does. So it is a fear. It's nothing, again, it depends who you listen to in terms of military experts, but a nuclear strike on the UK, I would imagine, would be met with uh, some equal force back, whether it be from us or whether it be from our allies. So it it is a fear, Peter, Uh, but equally, um, it's one of those times when, and I've listened to all the arguments, and back in the day I was a big advocate of uh, unilateral nuclear disarmament. I'm glad I didn't win that argument now because I think that um, you know having uh, a nuclear deterrent is probably what's stopping uh, that sort of strike or that threat of strike being a realistic one. Wow. Right, the unions and uh, the rail strike. Um, I was surprised uh, I couldn't go to London, couldn't use the trains. I was surprised uh, that the um, the public don't seem to be a little bit bothered because I don't know if they're used, uh, used to uh, home working uh, or being stuck at home. What, what are your views? Uh, but I do like the union leader. I think he's a, a very sound guy. <laughs> Well, Mick Lynch is having a good campaign, isn't he? And he, he's he's made um, a number of government ministers and broadcasters actually uh, look a little bit daft because he knows his brief. Uh, and like a lot of politicians these days, and I have to say some in the media, um, they don't. Uh, and so they go into conversations and debates with the guy without the full facts. And, yeah, know, I even heard Boris Johnson talk about... Um, Train drivers at the weekend. Well, train drivers are on strike. <laughs> you know, so, so, like that basic stuff that, that ministers just 
are getting to grips with as far as the dispute's concerned. So if they're going to win the, de- the debate and the argument in the country, then first and foremost, they need to find out what the debate actually is. Instinctively, I'm against strikes. My old man was a shop steward uh, back in the day, and one of his proudest boasts was he never took his men out on strike, and he never lost a negotiation. Because there are many other tools at the disposal of trade unions without the ultimate sanction of a strike. And so my dad would, would negotiate, he was a bus driver, so he would negotiate that work to rule. And they ban overtime. And they, you know, they'd do everything they could to make sure that the ultimate sanction of strike didn't take place. Because his argument was always, if we take the men out for, and it was predominantly men then, but on the buses, take the men out on strike for a week, even if we win the pay award that we're campaigning for, it takes us a year to get the money back that we've lost. So it was simple economics to me, Dad. And he also always felt that if you lost the customer's support, if you lost the public support, then you'd lose the argument anyway. So I think the strike for me is unfortunate, and I would hope that the unions can start to find other ways in which they can um, make an impact without that, as I say ultimate sanction. But I think the other thing that the Nick Lynch and his colleagues are, are sort of winning this discussion and debate on is that you know you and I use trains fairly regularly, Peter, because of our work. I don't like the idea of there not being any guards on trains. I certainly don't like that idea when my kids or my wife are using trains late at night. I want to feel safe, I want to feel secure. And I think most passengers would suggest that, you know, if you're old enough to remember as you and I are, uh, conductors on buses, I'd like people like that back on our public transport. So I don't, don't want to see um, a diminishment of those types of people on our train service. I also don't want, I mean, I hate this move that will happen towards the nation for everything. You know, you go to a supermarket now, and there's these rows of bloody tills that you have to scan. You st- I hate them. Hate them. Much preferred to be seen by a person. Frank, so let, me, let, me, let, me, let me stop you there and just say, you and I are on the same hymn sheep. I've just written a column for the Echo. I will not go to those machines. If there are people no, there, I, w- I will yeah. go to a person every time. <laughs> and in a petrol station, I will go to a person. Always, always. And as I say, I think that idea of just removing all the ticket uh, salespeople as well, because it makes financial sense. And then, of course, you start to learn the facts and figures. The rail staff haven't had a pay increase for three years. The rail companies have made £500 million. They're now talking to private equity firms about big bonuses and big monies into the, the executives, I think the chief executives on north of half a million pounds a year. And so I, I think the public have got an understanding and some sympathy with rail workers. And I also think the point you made that a lot of people now can work from home and so the disruption hasn't perhaps been uh, as bad as it may have been. But I am concerned that we get into this situation of public sector workers in particular, people like teachers, people like nurses, um, saying, well, you know, me too. If, if they're getting 7% at Mersey Rail, which was an agreement that was uh, done last week, 
then we want the same. And I understand and appreciate where people are coming from. We're all under pressure financially at the moment. Um, but I think if you look at the infrastructure and the underlying um, data coming through as far as inflation, interest rates, tax, you know, this all bad news. And at some point, it's inevitable that, you know, this magic money forest that Rishi Sunak has basically decided to open up over the past 18 months. He locked us down for too long. And then, as I say, in my view, I've said this for many, many months now, said it on your show before, he's trying to tax his way out of a recession. I don't think that's the right way to go. I want to see private sector companies keeping more money that's available for them so that they can invest in jobs. And I think we've got to start to have a look at this ridiculous situation we've got at the moment where we've got 5.6 million people on benefit and we've got 1.2 million vacancies in the economy. How does that work? There's a mismatch there that somebody sometimes who needs to come up with a plan and an answer for and that's what governments are supposed to be there for. And I think the final point I'd make on this piece is, is that if you've got a situation where companies are being told now, well, you're going to be taxed from a 19% corporation tax rate increase to 26% within the next two or three years, what's that saying to you about your growth plan? How am I supposed to plan for my future when I'm chasing that sort of tax up? It's ridiculous. And it's the most business-unfriendly Tory government I've ever seen. Incredible, really. Frank, those two figures you have just said are shattering, surely. Well, it's massive for business. I mean, people, you know, everyone always looks at business. They they make loads of money and they fed their own nests and executives earn this. And of course, some do. You know, in every walk of life, you've got people who don't do the right thing. But, you know, my business doesn't make millions of pounds a year. And the money that we make, what we've done over the past 20 years now, is we've reinvested that cash to open a new city, to take on new people, to invest in the equipment within the business so that we are more efficient, more effective, and provide better service to our customers, to our members. The vast majority of businesses and business owners do that. We like looking after our staff. We like building teams that are well rewarded and therefore give lots back to you as well. And the national insurance increase was absolutely what George Osborne said it was when Gordon Brown did it in 2009. It's a tax on jobs. Because I don't only have to pay my own national insurance increase, I have to pay the insurance increase half of it for all my staff as well. So whereas I was probably going to take on four additional people towards the end of this year, as we look to open another city, I'm going to have to only take two on now. So it is an absolute tax on jobs. When I then look to project for the future in terms of our growth, I'm thinking, hang on, 19%. That's a fairly hefty wedge of the profit that my company makes going into corporation tax already. Going up to 26, Peter. And this is a conservative chancellor. You tell me how that helps economic growth and business growth. Frank, briefly to finish off, do tell me how is Liverpool? Are we on the up and up still? 
Uh, I think we're in a difficult moment. I think that, um, you know, the city has obviously gone through a, a bit of a, a turmoil through the, the, the shenanigans of the town hall. We can't talk about that because obviously the yeah. cases that yeah. have been brought are still going on. But I think, you know, again, I've said, you can't be a little bit pregnant. And what we've got at the city council at the moment is commissioners in, um, still with an executive team, um, commissioners finding lots of things wrong, but doesn't seem to me coming up with many, if any, solutions. So whilst that's going on, I think we're always going to be in a bit of an uphill battle. But if you look at what's happening in the knowledge courts in particular, um, some fantastic developments and investments going in there. Thankfully, uh, Everton managed to avoid relegation. I say that both as an Evertonian, but also somebody who cares about the economy of the city. And the new stadium is bringing lots of new interest and new investment into the place as well. So I think still glass half full, but I think we've got to get the city council sorted out because we do have backlogs of planning applications. We do have investors who are looking at the place thinking, is it as secure as it needs to be for me to risk my money in there? So the sooner we get that sorted out, with either the commissioners coming in and taking over lock, stock and barrel, being very accountable for what's happening, or the commissioners get out of the way and let executives and councillors get on with the job. And I prefer that option, of course. Um, the sooner we get to that position, the sooner Liverpool can start to fly again. Frank McKenna from Downtown and Business. Wow, thank you for joining me. If you enjoyed that, why not subscribe? It's great and it's free. And we've got a great back catalogue of interviews.